Our sermon this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, that we might hear from our good and gracious God this morning. Philippians 2, verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray now that you will come and speak to us through it, that we might know you and be more like your Son and our Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the uh, book entitled Great Church Fights, there is a story of a church looking for a new pastor. In fact, the Newspaper picked up the events that were taking place on one particular Sunday morning. And I quote from that newspaper article, Yesterday the two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. They both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. They both called for invitation hymns, and the congregation sang too each side by side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. And then, then the Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Uh, there's some chuckles out there. Uh, and perhaps the chuckles are out there because we can kind of understand how something like this would happen. This is not unbelievable to us. It probably ought to be, but it is, it is not. Bedlam in the church service. Perhaps you heard the story of the man who was found on the deserted island and his rescuers noticed he had erected a number of buildings in which he said the, pointed out the first building was the home that he had built with his own two hands. And then he pointed to another building and he said that that building's the church where I worship. And they noticed a third building, and they asked, what's that building? And he said, oh, that's the church I used to worship at. <laughs> Division has been in the church for quite some time. It's nothing new. It was even taking place in Philippi. You see that, I think, in verse 2 when he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit etc. You could tell with the problem that's going on, can't you, that they are not getting along. There is conflict and division in the church, and they are beginning to turn on one another. And we considered last week the pressure in which the church was undergoing as there was opposition all around them. The culture was rebelling against their uh, beliefs and their understanding of truth, and there was persecution taking place. And, and they, like a nut perhaps under this, this pressure, they begin to crack and they, they start to turn on one another. In fact, Paul in chapter 4 will actually call them out by name, telling them to agree with one another. Now I want you to understand that Philippi is a great church. I and mean, we have seen this, haven't we? That from the very beginning that they have entered into partnership with Paul from the first day until now, Paul says, this is a wonderful church. And yet, even, even they are, are struggling with, with church 
division, even with church disunity. I've mentioned recently that I'm very excited as to where God has brought Hamilton Baptist Church. And I'm excited how I believe he's pushing us out into our, our local uh, community and into the nations and where we will go. And I'm excited that, that community groups are being started and people are looking to, to enter into discipleship relationships. I'm excited about the two men we're going to install as elders later on in this service. And I think God is doing wonderful things in this church. But let's make no mistake that this church is made up completely with sinners. We're all sinners. And what happens when sin comes in, it breeds conflict. We see this from the very beginning. Abel um, and and Cain, or even their parents, Adam and Eve, and we see Noah there in the midst of a a violent and self-promoting world, and there's conflict there in in the church, in in, uh, those families from the very beginning. In fact, I think Paul, who writes uh, a number of letters, I think every one of his letters, he actually addresses this issue of unity in the church, this unity, this disunity that, that breeds conflict. And here he is, and even this great church of Philippi, he's telling them to, to be united. In fact, I think he's doing so in order for them to fulfill what he wrote in verse 27 of chapter 1, when he said, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. We consider that last week, what that looks like to the outside world. How do we live a life in such a way that shows a world that opposes us, that we value the gospel above all things? And, and after he explained, this is how you do it with those outside. You stand firm and strive together and do not fear. He now turns his attention inside the church walls and say, okay, you want to live worthy of the gospel? That has something to do with how you live with one another, how you treat one another. The gospel ought to impact how you treat me and how I treat you and how we treat one another ought to communicate something about what we believe about Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us as much, didn't he? When in John 13 verse 34, he said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by how you love one another, not love the world, though we ought to. He said, they will understand something about your love for me by how you love one another. In fact, on the eve of his crucifixion, In that great high priestly prayer he prayed in John 17, I think I have it on the screen. Look at this prayer in which he prayed. In John 17, well, I'll read it for you. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Note this, why does he want them to be one? What's the purpose? So that the world may believe you have sent me. And he prays on the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why, Jesus? So that the world may know that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus understands and even prays towards this end that the unity of the church communicates what we believe about him to the world. Be united. Love each other so that the world will know you have been changed. I mean, how's the world going to know we're not anything other than a club? You have your sports club and your horse club or whatever. You have your knitting club. You You have your Jesus clubs. Aren't we more than a club? Aren't we a redeemed community that have been transformed? Don't we have a different message to communicate? And how we live in unity displays that message. In fact, we see this from the very beginning in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. I believe this will be on the screen as well. 
It says all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the favor with all people. You see this great unity, this love, this sacrifice for one another. The result, as we see in the Lord, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, evidently how you and I get along and treat one another has a lot to do with how the gospel goes forward. Our unity adorns the gospel. How we live together is essential. And so Paul is going to give them a picture of unity here in verse 2. I'm going to skip verse 1 and return back there in a little bit. But in verse 2 he says, complete my joy by having the same mind, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, community to Paul is to, to be one in love and spirit and mind. He says you, you're to have the same love, he tells us. This is how you live worthy of the gospel, that you love one another. This is what he's prayed for already. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 9, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more, that you would fall more in love with each other. This is what unity looks like, is that we love each other. The world considers unity in the context of strength. United we stand, divided we fall. And we've perhaps seen an example of that in Ukraine in recent days. But before the church's unity can be anything about strength, it has to be about love. That we begin, we are united in that we are bound together because we love each other. And so we are united here in love, I hope. My question then is, do we love each other? In fact, this is often a question I ask when someone brings a a complaint to me. As a pastor, they'll they'll come up and they'll have a concern with someone. And, And if you ever come up to me and say, I have a concern about person X, the first question you will hear me ask you as soon as I hear patiently your complaint is, are you telling me this because you love them? Is that what's motivating your concern? Is it out of love? Are you angry because you are so loved, you so love them that you want them to turn from sin? Is it out of love? In fact, I, I'm not saying that complaints are not legitimate. If I'm not, in fact, not doing my job, I invite you to, to come help me understand how it is I could better follow Christ and, and to tell me the areas in which I need to improve. I invite that. I, I appreciate you not do that all at one time, but I certainly, you know, have you space it out. I don't know if you could schedule that or what that's going to look like, but I'm going to ask you, are you telling me this because You love me? Is that why you're here? Because of the deep love that unites us together? This is what Paul seems to understand is that these members are so concerned with each other that love is motivating them. I think the world needs to see this, a community in love with each other, that they would have the same love. And he goes on and describes that it also looks like they have the same spirit. It's literally this idea of soulmates, he says, that they not just agree theologically, but there's this deep care for one another that draws them together. And then he says twice there in verse 2 that they would have the same mind or one mind. I think that's the idea that they would agree in truth. And then just the core truth, I think. And that they would agree to disagree in love and things that, that perhaps should not divide us and we should not fight and bicker about. And he gives us this picture of what this community looks like. It's a united community, but it's more than that. It's a joyful community. And I love that phrase at the beginning of verse 2 when he says, complete my joy by being united. Now remember what's going on in Paul's life as we studied. Right? Paul's imprisoned. He's been chained for four years. He's He's being slandered by other Christians. He could be executed at any moment. And you think, well, what would complete this man's joy? 
I don't know what will complete your joy in that situation. Uh, acquittal might. Right? I mean, you think Paul needs a vacation, don't you? A holiday at sea or something like that. But he's not asking for a cruise to complete his joy. He said, you know what will complete my joy is if that, if that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I hear that you are living worthy of the gospel by how you love one another, by how you are united with one another. What Paul is doing is he's showing us that there's a joy that is deeper and stronger and sweeter than getting your own way. Getting your own preferences. There's a joy that's even greater than freedom or pleasure or achievement or recognition. A joy that's found in this united community for Christ. A joy that's found when when the well-being of others is so strong that our personal preferences just fade from you. Because I love you. That's what he wants. That's what will fill him with joy. Where do you seek your joy? I wonder if you would list where you find your joy, if even it would make your list, a united community living for the gospel of Christ. Paul says that will complete my joy. It challenges us, I think, where we look for joy, but it also challenges us that we're, as we see, we're actually able to give joy. Do you notice that? It, it, Paul is saying, you Philippians, by your actions, will complete my joy. And so the way that they live is actually going to supply joy to another or take it away. That's fascinating to me. Especially in light of the fact that in a, in a little while we're going to install two elders. And I think, well, Paul is, is kind of a, a pastor of this church. And there might be a word here for church members and for us who serve as elders and pastors in this church. I would encourage you, members of this church, do you realize that you have the ability to give joy to those who shepherd you? You have the ability to fill them with, with delight. I wonder if you ever considered that. That's what seems the apostle is saying. And those who serve in this capacity as elders. I speak to the elders now. Where do you find your joy? Amen. Where is it? Is it found in the fact that, that the, the church is going where you want them to go? Or is it found... The fact that they are united in Christ, even if they might not be going the exact direction you would like to lead. And perhaps this doesn't seem to apply to many of you, but it does massively to me. That little three words jump off the page. I wasn't even expect, I was very familiar with this text when I came here, but this little phrase, complete my joy, just hit me. It says, Stephen, where do you find your joy? Where is your joy? And I will be very frank with you that my joy tends to, to waver depending upon whether the church is following in the direction in which I lead. And perhaps a better destination will be not the specific location where I want to go, but a church that is united and in love with one another, living for the gospel of Christ. It is to be a joyful community. As he gives us this wonderful picture, but then he begins to explain, okay, what does that unity look like as we flesh it out? How do, how do we see that unity? And we see these works of unity he begins by telling us what we ought not to do in verse 3, the things we ought to avoid, and, and namely, we ought to stop looking, thinking of ourselves. That self-focus is what destroys unity. As he says here in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry. He says, stop competing with one another. Some translations have selfish ambition. 
Oftentimes we want our own way. We want it to be, to be just like we want it to be. And we want our plans to take place. And we have this ambition in the, ch- the church. And we compete against one another. And, and often that competition takes place in our own minds. Right? We, we compete against one another mentally. And, and the interesting thing about when you compete mentally is you win every time, don't you? Right? You are like undefeated mentally. Um, as you compare yourself with other people, you have victory every single time. And we do this. We constantly compare ourselves with, with others. So this kind of seems like our, our default mode. This is why it's so easy to find flaws in other people. Let's find their weak spots. And, and we think, I, I can't believe he sings so loud. Does he know what he sounds like? Or, I, I can't believe she made that dish again. Does she know what that tastes like? Or... I, I can't believe he, his children behaved that way. Or did you hear how he spoke to his wife? Or did you see him raise his hands during worship? What a weirdo. Or did you see him not raise his hands in worship? He must not love Jesus. And, and right, we constantly are evaluating one another. And if we ever actually verbalize it, we'll see how foolish we sound. But often we don't. It just stays in our mind where we keep winning these competitions. I wonder if you've ever tried to go a day without evaluating anyone. Like, there should be no evaluation whatsoever. I'm going to fight again. Or maybe even better, go a day and you lose every mental competition. Have you tried that? Where you're just going to, you're going to take a dive, right? You're, you're not even going to fight. You, you see something wrong with someone, you immediately look for something better in, the, in them than in you. you. You begin to elevate them and put yourself down and you stop this silly competition that's in all of us. And it does not take long. Sometimes just a first glance, we're able to find something wrong with someone and you think in your mind, I'm, I'm better. And, and you want, not only do you want to think that you're better than other people, you want them to recognize that because he says you need to stop seeking praise as well as we read on in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. I like the King James here that says vain glory. Do not seek glory that is vain. The idea is I think I'm great and I want I want you to think I'm great as well. And so I want you to praise me. I want recognition. I want my reputation to soar. I want glory. That's what I want. I want glory, even though it might be vain. The word glory actually means weight. And, and what we're thinking is, I just, I want, I want weight. Not that you want more weight, but you, you, you know, you want significance, right? And you want, you want people to recognize your significance. This is why I, I struggle. I've confessed this with you. I struggle. I have this absurd tendency to care more about what you think about my sermon than what God does. And I'm constantly fighting against that and and praying through that because we seek our own glory. We have this selfish ambition and this vain glory and they destroy unity in the church. The the, uh, uh, brother of Jesus, James, would write, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He goes on and says, stop being proud as we read on in verse 3 saying, but in humility... He calls for us to be humble, which is the opposite of, of pride or arrogance. Pride is simply the, the self-inflated view you have of your own self. And it generally has nothing to do with reality, but it's how you see yourself. And, and typically what happens is we pick areas in our lives that are important to us and we inflate our, our self-understanding of that. Maybe our looks or intelligence or, or our cooking or our parenting or our preaching ability and we think we're better than we actually are. And then when people come and correct us, we have a great deal of difficulty with that. We defend that image like a cornered animal. This is why we struggle with correction. Does anybody struggle with correction here? Show of hands. Just, all right. Half of you. The other, the other half are too proud to admit it. Right? 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 Why? Why do you struggle with correction? You ever thought about that? Especially if it's true. Why? 
If it's done in love, why, why is that troubling to you? Well, it's because you're proud. And you have a view of yourself, and when someone comes and corrects it, it challenges that view. And you don't like to hear that. You want to keep your view. This is why we, we get angry when we're corrected and why, why we, we gossip about people. I can't believe they said such and such a thing. Or we think negative things about those who come and correct us. We, we reject it. That's why the proverb writer says pride um, goes before destruction. How many conflicts have been caused by a self-inflated view, a sense of entitlement, a sense that you owe me because I'm proud. And he calls for them to be humble. So he says, stop being proud and stop competing and stop seeking your own glory. And then he begins to explain what it is we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stop thinking of ourselves and start thinking of others as we read on in verse 3. And it says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Consider others better. Serve others. Set your mind on what they need. Count them to be more significant. Of course, you might think, well, what if they're not more significant than me? Well, that doesn't matter. He says, count them to be. Consider them to be more significant. Choose to see them this way. Just by the way, how God chooses to see you. You who have broken His law. He chooses to see you as innocent of sin. As you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Be like God in this area. Count others more significant than us. See each other as Christ sees us. I think of, of the president, for, for instance, that, that those who advise him, um, it, it's a great honor to advise him, and, and they just want to serve him in their, in their help, and they, they count him to be more significant than themselves. They put him first, and, and, and he stands above them in their mind, and they just want to serve him. What if, what if we came into this building on Sunday, and we just considered everybody else to be the president, and you're the advisor? And you just wanted to count their significance better than you and serve them and, and bless them and, and honor them and to sacrifice for them because you have counted them more significant than yourself. I think this is what Christ would have us to do. I think this is how we show the world we're different, by how we consider one another, that we gladly lay aside our preferences for the better of others, consider what others want. This is why I have such a massive struggle with what's been plaguing the American church over the past decades, the idea of worship wars, right? And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you have some group in the church who are, who are fighting over the style of, of our praise music. And some say, I like drums, and some say, I like an organ, and I like hymns, and I like modern songs. And we all have our own preferences, and we're all saying, me, me, me. And we're all, if I can say this in great love in my heart, acting like spoiled little children. Saying, I want what I want. And if we're not going to do what I want, then I'm going to fuss and complain and whine and cause all sorts of division. And I don't know, but maybe the gospel has taught us something about actually deferring to other people. Maybe Christ has actually shown us that maybe we shouldn't always seek our own preferences, but actually seek the preferences of others. In fact, I kind of hope you come to these worship services, and it's not exactly like you want. I kind of hope we're singing songs you'd rather us not sing. Because what a great opportunity for you to actually be like Christ to one another. Where you say, I gladly lay aside my preferences as I count others more significant than ourselves. Friends, if you think our worship services is about you, you're going to be disappointed a lot. Kind of on purpose. It's not about you. 
It is about God. Amen. We have come to worship God. And you know, my, my, on my priority list is uh, whether you actually like the style of worship is like, I don't know, 1,083. Well, that's when I'll start to think about that. I could care less, in other words. Because I'm not, I'm not, we're not having these services to please you. We're having them to please the one who has made you and redeemed you. And we have come to worship you. And God help us if we ever grow to a certain size and we maybe have a contemporary service and a traditional service. I'm quitting then. I'm, I mean, I praise the churches that do that. And I'm not standing in judgment. At least I'm trying not to. But I, I just, I don't understand that. Because I don't want you to understand, think that worship service is a cafeteria where I'll just choose this and this and hold the mail over here. And, and I'm just going to get what I want. And it's all about me and my preferences. I'm going to just feed me. No, friends, you have been called into the community of faith through the death of Jesus Christ. And he has shown you that you are to count others more significant than yourself. Lay down your preferences for the gain of the gospel and for love for one another. He count others more significant. We have room to grow. I have room to grow here. What are you doing to count your brothers and sisters more significant than you? What are you doing? Do you know? Well, very similar, he goes on and says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. I had Dave read from Leviticus 19, that ends when saying, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what I think this verse says. Look not only to yourself, but look to others. Love them. Love your neighbor. Consider their needs just as highly as your own. Can you imagine what the church would look like if churches begin to do this? I mean, marriages would be restored. Elderly would be cared for. Youth would be esteemed. The wayward would be sought after. Bickering would end. We just give ourselves for one another. In fact, Paul will give us examples here in chapter 2 of what this looks like. And by the way, I commend this once again to those who serve as elders and pastors in this church. Because all three of these men have a role like this. And you notice how that they understand the unity in the church. For instance, consider Paul in chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul says, I'm willing to pour out my life for you. I'm willing to give everything up for your faith. He is not, therefore, looking out for his own interest, is he? No, he's willing to give it all up for them. Or consider the pastor of this church, most likely, we think, Epaphroditus in verse 25 of chapter 2. He says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So Epaphroditus goes to Paul and he almost dies. He gets very sick. He's ill. And he gets distressed, not because he's ill, but because other people hear that he's ill. And I think, how unlike me is that? When I'm sick, I want everybody to know about it. And I want, I want, you know, I want you to say, poor Stephen, can I get you anything? Can I rub your feet again? Or, or whatever it is, right? We want, we want people to know. We want, okay, I'm sick. You're supposed to focus on me when I'm sick. But Epaphroditus is not concerned that he's sick, but he's not, he's concerned with them. They're, their interests, not his own, or consider Timothy, who will be the future pastor at the church at Ephesus in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. 
for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's the word interest that we just saw in, in verse uh, uh, 4, is it? Yeah, that he, no one like him is genuinely concerned for your interest. Look at in verse 21. They all seek their own interest, but not that of Christ Jesus. He's, he's concerned for you. He's concerned for your interest. In fact, Paul says this is rare. You notice that? Verse 21, they all seek their own interest. Or verse 20, I have no one like him. It's rare to find someone who seeking after the interest of others. Don't we agree that's rare? Uh, I wonder why it's rare. Because this is, this is not difficult to understand, is it? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying be humble and be selfless, and you're thinking, I don't know, I'm not following you. That's confusing. Right? We all get this. This is not challenging intellectually. It's hard because it's so unnatural. We are born thinking about ourselves, and we live our lives thinking about ourselves, and we constantly think about ourselves. You wake up from bed, and what, what do you think? You, I don't want to get up, or how did I sleep, or I hope the leg already up and changed diapers, or, or whatever it is, right? I mean, you constantly, you immediately are thinking of yourself. What do I have to do today? I, I at least, I don't wake up thinking, okay, I need to get up, hurry, and change diapers before Ligger does. You wake up, this default position is you're co- constantly thinking about yourself. No one has to try to be selfish. Right? You don't have to think, okay, I'm going to really try to be self-focused today and think only of myself. That comes naturally. In fact, do you ever take a group photo and, and you look at the group photo? Who's the first person you look at? Well, it's you. Right? You look at you. And, and if you look good, then the photo is a great photo. Right? <laughs> this guy's got his finger in his ear and someone else has something hanging from their nose. But you're looking at you look good. This is a good photo. We need to blow this up and frame this, put this on the wall. Because we are naturally self-focused. We, we think of ourselves. And what happens is we take that attitude in the church and we decide, well, should I come to worship service? And how do we decide? Well, what am I going to get out of it? Am I tired or am I exhausted or did I have a busy day? Or I could go serve in this ministry, but I don't know. I, I did this and this and, or, or I, I'm just, I got too much going on. And, and rarely do we think I'm too exhausted to go, but... But I want to go because I've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to build up other people. And I want to use those gifts. Even though I'm tired, I want to go for others. I want to go for others. It's rare that we actually think that way. It's not natural. And so if it's not natural, how are we actually going to do this? Is the question, isn't it? How, how do we change? Do we just grit our teeth and tomorrow we try harder? I'm going to be humble today. No. No. We find a source that will make us like this. Consider lastly the source of humility in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. See, Paul doesn't begin here by saying, be united. He doesn't, he doesn't say, stop it. Cut that out like a parent might. Behave yourself. It's not what he's saying to this church. Instead, he begins by appealing for unity by rehearsing what the gospel has brought them. 
You see that in verse 1? He asks these four rhetorical questions, inviting them to reflect on what Jesus had brought them. And that the more they understand the gospel, and the more they cherish what Christ has done, the more their hearts will be changed. That they will become overwhelmed with grace and the wonder of the selfless love of their Creator and of their Redeemer. And soon their natural bent will, will be replaced with, what do I deserve to what I can give? Because I already received everything I need. So he begins here with the gospel. He wants to fill them with joy with the gospel so that they begin to think less of themselves. That this fades away. He says, begins by saying, do you have any encouragement in Christ? We should not be by this point be surprised he starts with Christ. Because apart from Christ, you and I were going to try to accumulate everything and live for ourselves and seek after ourselves. But in Christ, we have everything. In Christ, we are now free to serve others because I don't need anything because I have Jesus. I don't need to watch out for myself and and meet my own needs. I'm free to give myself away and to love and to think less of myself because Christ is looking out for me. Do you have any comfort from the Father's love? He goes on to ask. And I think he's referring to the Father because he's about to mention the Spirit here. And he wants us to think about the love in which you have received from God. You who have rebelled against Him and broken His law and sinned against Him. You who do not deserve His love. And yet He has poured out His love upon you. Even when you sin, He continues to love you. And the more you are aware of that love and the more you cherish that love, the more you will become free to love others even when and they are sinning against you. You become transformed by that love because your love for them is not dependent upon their actions, but upon understanding and cherishing the love in which God has for you. And he goes on and says, do you share in the Spirit? You realize the Spirit of God resides in you, but He also resides in every one of your brothers and sisters. The same Spirit of God lives in me, lives in you. Therefore, how can I consider you my rival? How can I compete against you? You have the Spirit of God within you, and He is in me, uniting us together. Do you have any affection and sympathy? He says, God's affection is upon you. The Creator of the universe has poured out affection on you. Are you therefore not free from trying to win the praise and approval of other people? He says, look at the Gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're, we're excited that you're here with us this morning. You're welcome anytime. But I, I wonder if, if you were able to, to ask the Creator for something, what would you ask of Him? I, I, wonder, I wonder what you would request from the Almighty. Maybe, maybe it would be better health or help with your financial situation. Maybe it would be peace at home or maybe peace in the world. Uh, maybe it would be just one perfect day. Right? Everything goes right. Maybe it'd be, it wouldn't snow tomorrow. Right? What would you ask? All those things are good, I think. There's nothing, nothing wrong with those requests. But I want you to understand that what God actually offers you today is something infinitely better than all those things. You who deserve to be God's enemy, He will offer you encouragement in Christ. You who deserve His wrath, He will offer you love through the gospel. You who deserve to be excluded from God, He will place His Spirit in your life. You who deserve judgment, He will offer affection, sympathy, and mercy. Maybe the problem is not that you're asking God for too much. Maybe you're asking Him for too little. He will establish your eternity forever if you will simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. 
You see, in the gospel, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us Christ. And Christian, you have Christ. And here Paul is holding out the gospel to you. And it's like in verse 1, it says, dazzling gem. And he asks you to gaze upon it as he turns it. And he says, Christian, do you see the encouragement you have through Christ? And and we all answer, yes. And then he says, do you see the, the comfort that you have from the Father's love? And we answer, yes. And he says, well, look here. Do you see that the Spirit is within all of us? And we answer, yes. And he turns it one more time and says, do you see that God's affection is upon you? And we, we answer, yes. The question is, do these truths change you? Are you changed by them? Can you say, ambition, who cares? I have the encouragement of Christ. Glory for me. No, no, no. Glory to Him. Pride. How can I be proud in face of what Christ has done to redeem me? And what happens, though it's unnatural to us, Christ begins to lay hold of us and our desire for self-preservation begins to fade away and we begin to want to put other people first in light of what we have already received in the gospel. And when we do, we actually become like Christ, as you see in verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what Christ is like. What is he like? Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or seized, but made himself nothing, he says. Taking on the form of a servant, he served us, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see how Christ has counted you more significant than even himself. Do you see how he has looked out for your interests and not his own? This is where humility comes from. When you become overwhelmed by grace, that Christians ought to be stunned into lowliness because of the gospel. This is why I keep talking about Jesus. I think we just need to exalt Jesus. I want you to rejoice and delight in Jesus and that you would find what he has given to you through his death and resurrection more precious than anything and you would be free to let go of all these other things that you and I seek after. Unfortunately, Christianity is often presented as a list of things to do. Here's what you're supposed to do, and here's what you're supposed to do. And so as we end our time this morning in God's Word, I don't want you to walk away thinking, okay, I have my list. Every Sunday you come and I give you a list. Do this and do this and don't do that. Don't do that. Do, 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 do. I call those do-do sermons. Can I say that? I don't know if I can say that. That's not Christianity. That is not your faith. You do not act differently by trying harder. You act differently by being changed. You need to be changed and I need to be changed. We don't do different things simply because we try. That just makes you a Pharisee. We, we change in Christianity by becoming a different person through the gospel. By cherishing the gospel. So, so I end by saying, do not seek unity. Seek Jesus. Seek the gospel. Wake up tomorrow morning with a smile on your face saying, I, a sinner, have received grace today. And when trouble comes upon you, traffic or difficulty at work, you think, I am God's son or God's daughter. And you come home and there's stress. You think, I will live forever in a kingdom prepared for me by my Savior. Let the gospel flow through your mind that it might make you a different person. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We want to live worthy of the gospel. I pray that you work so deeply in our hearts 
that our joy is found in Christ and our needs are found in Christ and that we become free, free to count others more significant than ourselves as we endeavor to live a life worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.